Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Robert Boswell, says there are two types of writers, those who write variations on the same novel and those who write different books each time. Robert Boswell is squarely in the second camp. He has written seven novels, three short story collections, a play, and two books of nonfiction, including The Half-Known World, his much-heralded book on the craft of writing. His stories and essays have appeared in The New Yorker and Best American Short Stories, and Boswell is the recipient of two National Endowment of the Arts Fellowships and a Guggenheim. He's here today on Between the Covers to talk about Tumble Down, his new novel, Ten Years in the Making. Oprah Magazine describes it best when they say, Tumble Down will make you laugh out loud, then sucker punch you straight to sorrow. Boswell is a writer who can see the humanity and, yes, even beauty in just about anything, including a lone man sitting at a late-night diner holding a frosted donut to his nose as if it were a flower. Welcome to Between the Covers, Robert Boswell. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. So we enter the world of, of Tumble Down through the eyes of James Candler, a 30-something old therapist who's just accepted a job at a for-profit mental health institution, and at the same time that his life is, is pulling apart at the seams. Can you introduce us a little bit more about James Candler and, and what's going on for him? Well, James is uh, in a situ- situation that from the outside looks great. He's uh, young. He seems to have his act together, so to speak. He's engaged to uh, an attractive young woman. He um, He's in line to become the youngest director in the history of this center. Uh, everything looks uh, wonderful, but on the inside, he's a mess. Um, he... Can't, he cannot articulate what's wrong, and um, he's going to have to go through a whole series of events before he starts um, understanding how something in his life is inauthentic. And I think it's actually something, it's a situation that uh, many of us have found ourselves in at one time or another that... Um, we know uh, the way we're living is not quite the right thing for us, but um, it looks so good from the outside, you know? If only we could get outside our own lives. Um, uh, we're, we're confident that it would look like we're happy and doing well, but, you know, uh, instead we're on the inside and we know that uh, we're not happy, and if we... Um, look at it closely, we know we're not well. And so that's James Gandler's situation. And, and the, the rehabilitation center where he's going to start working, the Onyx uh, Center, what is that all about? What, what is the job that he, he's going to be, uh, be doing there? Well, the center is, a, uh, as you mentioned, a for-profit uh, rehab center. Uh, it's uh, a big... Uh, complex uh, organization that um, is doing good work. There's no question that it's doing good work, but it's also, you know, when when anytime there's that for-profit addition to uh, the description of of a place that is meant to help people, it sooner or later that can wind up getting in the way and. Uh, the book is not really about that, but the book does explore a little bit how how the profit motive can be uh, a problem for uh, people who are in who have the job of trying to help others. 
Well, let's have uh, you read a section from Tumble Down for for our listeners so they can hear the prose. I'm just going to read the uh, opening page. There are yet states of being that have no name, anonymous human conditions that thrive at the periphery of powerful emotion, the way bedroom communities manacle a city. James Candler and Elizabeth Ray reside in such a place, separately. They are new arrivals. Candler showed up the last week of January purchasing a big stucco house snouted by a two-car garage. A few weeks later, Elizabeth Ray paused in her pale subcompact to eye his residence. Neither the ugliness of it nor its enormity could dissuade her. She circled the block several times to look it over. Around the corner, she parked at an apartment complex, her studio with balcony rented by the week. The subtle pleasures of suburban life would prove difficult for Candler to seize. Shoving the mower around his front lawn left him without the humblest sense of accomplishment. What could he do in that yard? He managed to locate a decent local restaurant, a steakhouse that also served Mexican food, but it played CNN day and night on an elevated screen the size of a motel mattress. I don't suppose you could turn that off, he asked. The waiter, a Sinaloa transplant who walked past Candler's house every weekday morning holding hands with his fourth-grade daughter and practicing English according to her strict instructions, smiled and shook his head, saying, People like. Even the spitting applause of sprinklers oppressed Candler, reminding him of waking as a child to a snow-covered television screen and the disturbing sense that he was sleeping through his life and it would soon be time to die. For Elizabeth Ray, it was an entirely different place. She looked for Candler, or evidence of him, when she visited the coffee shop. Either the bars, the grocery, the hardware store, any aisle she turned down could reveal him, any booth might hold him, every niche and corner resonated with the possibility of him. If the man in line in front of her at the bank did not turn his head, he could be him. Every day she imagined the smallest details of his life. Meanwhile, he did not know her, or thought he didn't. People encounter life in vastly dissimilar ways. Some insist their days are orderly and unchanging, vessels on a slow-moving assembly belt, each identically filled by invisible hands. For others, the days are relentlessly complicated and unpredictable, as different one from another as patients waiting to see a therapist. But for everyone... There comes a day when the filling no longer fits the vessel, when the therapist finds himself pouring out his heart to the patients, when air is indistinguishable from water and out the rough equivalent of in, a day when even the voice of God carries a dubious tremor. Such days are worthy of our attention. One of the things that jumps out almost immediately as a reader in Tumble Down is there's something distinct about the way the story is told. And you don't necessarily put your finger on it right away, but a lot of reviewers have pointed out the the fact that there's a large ensemble cast and and even referring to movies by Robert Altman as an example in the in the in the film world. To me it wasn't the large cast so much as that you choose to tell the story from all of this cast point of view. So each each of these many characters gets a, a shot moving the narrative forward, and you spend a lot of time contextualizing their backstories. 
giving us a lot of empathy and context with regards to the actions that they do. And I was curious about that choice. Uh, for me, it felt like a good one in terms of mirroring what it must be like to be a therapist when you're having somebody come to your, multiple people come to your office all through the day and you're listening to their own narratives and their own backstories. Well, when I went to tell this story, you know, I actually was a counselor back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I knew sooner or later I'd write about that time in my life. Uh, but I I wanted to um, tell not just the story of the counselors, but also the story of those um, patients, those clients that they saw. And I began to feel that uh, the two voices together um, made the song complete in some way. And so... Uh, once I started that, the the story really <laughs> began to spread like um, fire, and uh, I I kept exploring new characters and seeing where uh, it was going to go, and it became a challenge how to hold all that together. There's an omniscient voice that holds all that together, and for I took ten years to write this uh, book, and for the first seven or eight years, I thought I understood uh, how it went together and how it turned out, and ultimately it was um, a much more conventional novel than what I wound up with. About seven or eight years in, I realized that uh, there was some element that was missing from it, and I've got to back up a little bit to explain where that element came from. I... um, When I was a counselor, I was a very special kind of counselor. I was an evaluator. I would uh, take clients for two or three weeks, other counselors' clients. I would give them all kinds of tests, you know, intelligence tests, aptitude, interest, all kinds of tests. I had simulated workstations where they would come, and I would see how well they could actually um, uh, persevere in a work environment. And then I would write up a report and uh, send it to the counselor. And if you can imagine being a counselor who has a client who, say, maybe was a welder and, you know, has hurt his back. He can't be a welder anymore. He says he'd like to go to college. You have no idea whether he would uh, be successful in college. This kind of evaluation can be incredibly useful. But the problem I ran into was that um, some of the counselors started treating the test scores or my uh, comments about the test scores in the report as if they were infallible. Um, And that started causing a lot of trouble. I can give you one uh, quick example. I had an African-American client who I worked with for three weeks, she scored in the what was called um, she scored in the mildly impaired range. Back then, we actually still called it mild, mildly retarded. Don't use that term anymore. But I knew that she wasn't. I mean, I worked with her and all kind doing all kinds of things. It was clear to me that she wasn't. And that test has a history. There's a racial bias in it that. Um, uh, African-American uh, uh, people tend to score uh, lower on that test, and there's it's been well-documented 
So I reported the scores, and then I reported what her actual score probably should be, adjusting for the bias that's in the test. The counselor called me up and said, you're coddling. I'll never forget that exact expression. She said, you're coddling. And basically what she meant is whatever the test score says, that's the truth. Um, well, I knew that, was, that it wasn't the truth, and I tried to make a, an argument with the counselor. She would not budge. She also would not give me permission to talk to the client again. The client is, you can imagine her situation. She goes in to see her counselor, and, and the counselor says, well, the test scores show you're retarded, and she knows she's not. She became furious. She quit. She lost all her funding. I ran into her just coincidentally in the grocery a couple of months later, and she screamed at me. I'm not retarded. She screamed at me. And I just had to let her scream at me. I tried to explain, um, but there's no explaining that. And the truth is I'd let her down by not anticipating how the um, counselor would react. So I came to think of those reports as a form of unreliable omniscience, that they're treated as if they're omniscient, but really they're, they're not. And um, standardized tests are treated in this country as if they're omniscient, and we all know they're not. Um, and once you start looking for unreliable omniscience, there's a lot of it. The GPS in our cars, you know, that... Uh, seem like they, they're omniscient. It seems like they know every street and way in the country. But I was, I, I was going to a baseball game one time in downtown Houston. It told me to get off the freeway, so I got off the freeway. Then it told me to get back on. And the freeway made a little loop, so it was more direct to, get, to go off the ramp and then get back on. I mean, it's, un, it's another form of unreliable omniscience. Out in Colorado, it often wants to send me on four-wheel drive roads, you know. Um, and what about the nightly news? You know, I think that's yet another form. So about seven or eight years into um, the novel, I realized that those reports and their unreliable omniscience were teaching me what the point of view of the novel should be. Uh, the only problem is that that point of view doesn't exist. There is no such thing as unreliable omniscience. So I just had to make it up. And... Um, I think that accounts for the weirdness that uh, is in the omniscient voice, the quirkiness, um, and I'm just, um, you know, I'm really happy that people seem to like it. In fact, often the, the reviews um, talk about that uh, quite a lot. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Robert Boswell about his latest novel, Tumble Down. When you talk about unreliable omniscience, I mean, obviously, when you think of omniscience in general in fiction, it's not something we come across very much anymore. I, I jump back to the novels, say, of Tolstoy or Eliot, and uh, people who have uh, books that the narrator makes these godlike pronouncements that are um, uh, not coming from any of the characters. How is unreliable omniscience different than that in the sense that you have a voice that will come in and will make occasionally make um, pronouncements, but the pronounce, pronouncements, while they may be biased, that doesn't necessarily make them unreliable, does it? 
If you think about those omniscient narrators and the way they present the world, you also have to think about the time that they're written. And at the time they're written and the audience, at least, that they're trying to address, for the most part, shared a kind of vision or understanding of the world that probably included uh, an omniscient God. And in some way, that shared belief, I think, uh, permitted that omniscience to be acceptable in a way that has become a little more complicated in the uh, contemporary world. So I think unreliable omniscience makes better sense, really, for the 21st century. In terms of the unreliable narrator, that um, historically is the first-person narrator who is not necessarily someone you can't trust, but is someone who's not telling you the whole story. And um, he may not be telling you the whole story because he's trying to hide something, but it may be that he can't see the whole story. You know, uh, very often if you have a child narrator, the child is telling the truth uh, as he understands it, but he can only see so much of it. So uh, what really defines the unreliable narrator in the traditional sense is that the reader has to uh, understand the story that's on the page, but also has to read between the lines to see the larger story. So there's a story and a shadow story. Um, when I started trying to figure out what I meant by unreliable omniscience, it seemed to me that there isn't the option, if you have an omniscient narrator, of having a shadow story that's implied because if you're omniscient, you would, you would be able to read between your own lines. Right. So, um, so I decided that um, the shadow story has to be explicit in the, in the narrative, and it, it makes for a wild ride at the end of uh, the novel. And... Um, that just trying to give you an example of the kinds of things that I wound up uh, having to think about when I was working through this, and why it took me ten years, man. That was that yeah. was a long time. It sounds like a, a hard thing to puzzle out. Well, one one of the delights of reading Tumble Down is the fact that we get so many voices, and that's some of the voices, many of the voices are of people with psychiatric disorders, and so we get a real different texture and a rhythm, and there's there's a, a a lot of variation in the in voice because we jump into uh, people with very different internal experiences, um, but that also is a way in which I think it undermines the idea of uh, anybody in the novel having an authority or an objective viewpoint, because we see the counselors, and even though they're not mentally challenged, they're not handling their challenges well in their life. And then we see the characters who have psychiatric disorders who, um, when told from their own point of view, yes, there's, uh, there's humor and, and uh, other things revealed about their limitations, but there's also a lot revealed about their own generosity and, and the ways in which they really are um, triumphing in their, in their life as well, which both undermines this sense of authority, but also sort of blurs the line between what sane and insane really is. I worked really hard to uh, make sure that um, 
all of the characters receive the same kind of uh, treatment in terms of under trying to understand uh, who they are and how they see the world and uh, trying to avoid the trap of saying that because this this character has a diagnosis then there's a limitation that um, I can see and I will represent on the page but uh, because this character doesn't have a diagnosis does that really mean that they have no limitations you know um, it, it became pretty clear to me in uh, writing about this that I had to uh, address all the characters limitations whether they had a diagnosis or not and that became a way for me um, sort of to negotiate through all these characters the other thing that was crucial and it's a little more um, complicated. Is that um, I, I had a, I worked with a lot of uh, clients, and um, some of them would be intentionally funny. They would try to make me laugh. Some of them were inadvertently funny uh, because of the limited ways they understood the world. Um, but the same was true of my friends. Some of them would be intentionally funny, try to make me laugh, and some of them were unintentionally funny. And not just my friends, my neighbors, everybody. So I had to be careful because sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes when people write about uh, people with um, mental limitations or mental problems, they're only there for laughs. Sometimes people correct that by making, giving them a certain kind of preciousness and I feel like that's also a, a form of dishonesty. So I, I uh, part of another reason that it took so long was to try to make sure I was investing with their full humanity, which means part of the time laughing at them or with them. If you're laughing at all the other characters but not at this group of characters, that seems like to me a form of condescension. So, well, some it was of the tricky. some of the greatest wisdom came from Mick, the one of the clients at the Onyx Center, when he was talking about the difference between sane and insane people. And he said uh, at one point, sanity is finding a way to accommodate the impossible, some way of covering up for the failures of the rational world. I, I really love that idea. And also, he saw it as a very thin line in terms of a sane person would know when to memorize the right sort of rote responses to do in certain socially acceptable moments that an insane person wouldn't pick up on those cues and do it. So the line was actually really thin for, for Mick, but I also feel like it's thin and, and tumble down too. Well, uh, working on this book for, for uh, such a long time and having been a counselor before, you know, having a, degrees, I've studied this stuff, it does lead you to start questioning what what it means to be sane and some people will say being sane is is to always offer an authentic response to the world but if a waitress is asking you what you want to eat you you know you just need to give her the answer that you want a sandwich you don't really want to to make some kind of authentic authentic uh, response to her humanity in that moment She's got other people. She's got other tables to deal with. And so it is complicated, and uh, I'm glad that you uh, like that part of the book uh, because uh, that was another thing where I, 
he is really, really fighting, struggling to find some way to be in the world that will permit him to have a life. And um, adolescent onset of schizophrenia is really this very mysterious thing that happens where a kid can be perfectly normal one day and then the next day um, be lost, you know, be quite seriously lost. And um, uh, Mick is based on a a client that I saw back then, a client that um, I cared very deeply about. And um, so I'm happy that um, that's a part of the novel that, uh, that you especially like. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the omniscient aspect of this book because as a as a um a reader most of the time I feel like in Tumbledown we're in the subjective point of view of different characters and I almost wonder if the unreliability is the omniscient narrator arguing for the lack of object- objectivity in the world like almost arguing for the impossibility of their own position in the book when I think of writers like Philip Roth, who are dealing with radical subjectivity and arguing explicitly against the idea of objectivity, or think about how some philosophers think about the only way to to uh, approximate the idea of an object is to circumambulate it with as many viewpoints as possible, which feels somewhat what you're doing when you're not in the omniscient voice. Do you feel like the, that there's something about the unreliability aspect of the omniscience that is the voice undermining itself? Well, I don't want to tell people how to read the book, but I can, I can talk a little bit about how I think about this. And it is in terms of objectivity and subjectivity, but it also has to do with how we think about sanity and we think about it as if it is an objective thing that exists in the world. And if you think about it as an objective thing in the world and you've been told that you have no claim to it, it's almost impossible to, to, if you're trying to make your own path to it, it's impossible to make that path Mm. because I don't think it is an objective thing that exists in the world. It's something that uh, we have cumulatively uh, agreed upon as uh, n- not exactly how it exists, but how we something that we can recognize. Anytime you have that kind of judgment by committee, so to speak, you know, in this sense, what the world uh, uh, considers uh, normal is at least one way of thinking about it is uh, whether you uh, conform to certain ways of being that we will uh, collectively agree upon as normal. For example, you know, when I, uh, before I could give these tests, I had to take them all. One was the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, you know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, forced choice questions. And then they they provide you with a scale. Uh, My teacher said, well, you pretty much score in the normal range, uh, everything except this one scale, and we don't think homosexuality is, is uh, anymore a diagnosable disease. And I said, pardon? <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm not gay. And uh, I, I, I was saying, what, 
how 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 I would have been clinically gay, you know, when this counted. And I went to look. I got to do what um, no one else gets to do because I went I went back and looked at each one of those questions. I can remember one of the questions verbatim. It said, um, "Would you rather read uh, a book on mechanics or a book of poetry?" And I read that and thought, okay, well, maybe I am gay because I would much rather read the poetry, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, um, but my point being, at one point in time, people collectively agreed that if you were homosexual, you were sick. We no longer, we understand now that was a mistake. We understand now that that shouldn't, shouldn't have anything to do with that test. So if that's the case then what are the other things in there that at some point in the future we're going to decide really shouldn't be part of the examination? That's the kind of thing that really fascinated me when I was a counselor, and it's also the kind of thing that uh, fascinated me in this book. And so I, part of the reason I felt like I needed this big cast was I needed to look at various ways of engaging the world and what kind of things they run up against in terms of limit their own personal limitations and how they the ways in which they gauged the world that were either ineffective or damaging or so on and so forth, some of which would be diagnosed as illness and some of which would be just, oh, well, that's the way he is. Psychiatry is the perfect background for a tumble down in the sense that we're, we've definitely come to a place in, in understanding of psychiatry today that it doesn't have a biological underpinning the way a lot of other medicines do. Like, like if you need six of the following nine things to qualify for major depression, those six of nine were never tested versus five of seven or two of three. They were put together by committee. Right. Which which is interesting and very different than the way a lot of other things are, are put together, which I think goes back to your point of some of this is going to fall apart with the passage of time and, and the knowledge that we, we learn over, over time. One of, the, one of the most hilarious parts of TumbleDown, and, and also I think uh, a part of TumbleDown that s- serves as a metaphor is um, James Candler, the therapist's uh, brother, Pook, who's who's mentally challenged, but also a, a talented artist, and and the part about his the comic book that they do together called the Same Man, and and Pook can only draw everybody looking exactly the same, so all of the characters look like each other, even though they're different people. And I, I I that reminded me a little bit of what George Saunders talks about thought streams, how. We don't really believe that the person across from us at any given moment is actually real and independent of us, that we're these ongoing thought streams, that we collide against each other. And, and the real challenge is to find a way to, to, to have empathy and actually experience bodily the other, other person there. And I, I wondered if that was something you were playing with also. Um, that's not just limited to Pook, but you know, Candler or the other counselors would be having that very same limitation of just being a human being. Well, I wasn't thinking of that specifically. I like the way you're describing it. Um, when I was uh, writing that, of course, when I was first writing it, I was just 
following it. You know, I had this narrative impulse to uh, pursue Pook. In the early drafts, Pook was a very small bit of the novel, and I became more and more interested in him and kept writing about him, even though I was fairly certain I was going to wind up cutting him out of the book entirely. And at some point, I understood that this comic book that they're putting together was a certain kind of mirror of of the book that I was writing. And I you know, I can't tell you how happy it made me <laughs> when I when I understood that I was going to get to keep all that material and keep it in the book. And I think if I had not decided to invest the novel with unreliable omniscience, I, I don't think Pook would have stayed in the book. As I see it anyway, uh, it, the, the comic book that they write is part of the way I explain what um, the point of view is doing. I don't want to uh, overanalyze it, but um, that's how I see it anyway. And, of course, also, you know, I wanted to have fun with it. Um, most of the chapters in here are funny. And um, I, most of the books that I love are funny, you know. Um, and I think most of the best books in literature are uh, often very seriously funny. You know, one time I, I, I took a chapter from a famous novel and I changed the characters' names and I changed the place names. And it was the first chapter to a novel. I gave it out to people to read. We read it aloud in class. People were laughing hysterically and said, wow, this is so funny. What is this? It was the first chapter to uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And oh, most, no people, <laughs> most people don't think of Tolstoy as being funny, and they don't give themselves permission to laugh when they start reading it. Uh, but he's often trying to be funny, and he's wickedly funny. Um, I can hardly think of a novel, a great novel, that isn't also seriously funny. And tell us what Tumble Down means to you, the title. Let's go back to Mick. Mick is one of those characters who is always trying to figure out how to get his life back. You know, he has, he suffers from schizophrenia. It's adolescent onset of schizophrenia. It happened very abruptly. And he wants to go back to that life. And what I realized at some point in writing that is that um, we're all in that situation. <laughs> I'm 59. There's certain, certainly uh, things about uh, being in my 30s that I miss, that I long for. I miss, you know, I would like to go back to that time, say, when my kids were in the house and around, so on and so forth. Um, I feel like there's something... Um, intrinsically human in in that desire and it's not merely the desire of someone who has a diagnosis so he at some point described his current life his life as a schizophrenic as um, a tumble-down way of existence you know and um, well, I stole that from him my character <laughs> I love the word it's just such an evocative unstable word yeah, it's it's a noun, but it has that feeling of a verb too. So, uh, so are, are you working on anything at the moment, or are you just uh, working on uh, <coughs> setting out the word on tumble down? I am working on several things. I have a play that 
um, if I can ever get it revised, is going to be a, a produced off Broadway, and I have a 509 pages of a new novel. Um, it's still missing two or three chapters, and that's just the early draft. So I know I've got a lot of work to do on it, but I feel good about having that. I've got maybe um, eight or ten stories. Wow. So you have a lot on, on your plate. Is the new novel going to, I know you allude to the wildness at the end of Tumbledown, and I'll I'll verify that you, you make some bold choices at the end that I think really pay off. Are, does that em- embolden you to uh, do some more uh, narrative experimentation in the novel you're working on now? Well, it, it, the first half and the second half are uh, formally different, radically different. And so... Um, I guess the answer is yes. I um, I don't think about it as experimentation. I think about it as trying to find the true form of the material. Uh, Chekhov makes that argument that every story has to invent its own form. And I think there's um, some real truth to that. And um, But I guess it is. Um, uh, um, people keep calling it experimental, so I, I, I'll accept that term. Well, maybe experimental in this, and it really, they mean it's rare. You know, it's different. It's strange. And uh, I'm delighted. Uh, you know, part of the reason I, I finally decided when I was trying to decide how to write it, uh, I decided to go this way because it was the boldest thing I could do. And I thought, all right, well, I've got to try it. Once I recognize that, I've got to try it. So I'm very happy that um, it's worked out that people like it. Yeah, it was a great read. And It was great having you on Between the Covers today. It's great to be here. Thanks, David. We're talking today with Robert Boswell about his latest book, Tumbledown. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.